Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, in this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I discuss some of the different types of risks investors face and the methods that some may consider in trying to mitigate these risks. The market's large down move over the past month, along with the uncertainty investors face going forward, gives us an opportunity to discuss the pros and cons on a range of strategies that attempt to limit risk and manage a portfolio through major market declines. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Today, we're going to talk about techniques for risk management, but just maybe to sort of give a little history and context here about um, our ability to talk about this stuff. Um, what, you know, when we first started running Validia and building these models, we were essentially running like long-only active stock selection strategies. And then um, we went through the 2008-2009 financial crisis and bear market. And coming out of that, you know, we really started to look at different ways that we could um, build investment strategies, various techniques for managing risk. And so some of it has to do with trend following. Some of it has to do with um, various quantitative investment strategies that sort of balance risk and return, which I think we'll talk about in a few minutes. But maybe to start, we could just um, go through the different types of sort of risks or shocks um, that can impact the market. And, you know, within each of those, we can sort of discuss the type of assets that may or may not do well. And then, you know, we can kind of get into some maybe non-standard techniques about how we manage sort of some of that, some of that risk. So to start, do you want to give a little um, primer on the different types of shocks um, that we can sort of experience in, in the market and what might drive them? Sure. So I think the first thing to acknowledge is that, you know, we're going through a period of high volatility in the market right now. And everybody tends to want to talk about these risk management strategies after the fact. Everybody tends to, you know, I, I remember in 2008, everybody wanted to be invested in the permanent portfolio, which we'll talk about in a little while, but everybody wanted to be invested in that after the decline because it was down only 2% in 2008. So I think it's first, it's important to acknowledge that the time to be implementing these risk management techniques is probably not after the decline has happened. And, and you know, you saw that in 2008. A lot of people implemented these types of risk management techniques and then they didn't work for a really long period of time. So, you know, these should be implemented as long-term strategies. They shouldn't be implemented just following crises. Um, and, and it's important to acknowledge that because people tend to implement these at the wrong time. That is a great but In point, terms of shocks, you know, there's two different types of shocks. And, you know, in, in my career, we've only seen one of them, but the other one does exist. You know, one is the, is a deflationary shock. And you know, 2008 was a deflationary shock, shock. What we're going through with the coronavirus right now is a deflationary shock. And what works in those types of things is very different than what works in an in, in inflationary shock. And, you know, it's really been the 70s, early 80s since we've had any kind of issues with inflation. So most people are not familiar with inflationary shocks, but it's just important to acknowledge that during these inflationary shocks, what's worked in a decline like the one we're seeing right now probably would not work if, if it was an inflationary shock versus a deflationary shock. So I think it's just important to, 
to acknowledge both of those, although we'll probably be talking mostly about deflationary shocks, because in modern times, that's mostly what we've seen. It's important to acknowledge they both exist and that what works in one is not going to work in the other. So a deflationary shock is something that basically affects future growth or lowers future growth, right? Right. As prices are going down, recession, you know, that, that type of thing. Right. Whereas an inflationary shock, obviously, is you're, you're facing inflation like we faced in the 70s. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, as a general rule, bonds tend to do very, very well in deflationary shocks as a hedge. And things like commodities tend to do very well as a, as a hedge in inflationary shocks. And so what you've seen recently in recent years is commodities performance has been horrible and bonds performance has been very good. But that's not necessarily what will always happen. And so it's just important to acknowledge these inflationary shocks exist and, you know, more of an approach that in includes commodities. And we'll talk about this in a little while, but more an of an approach that includes commodities and things like that will do better, you know, if, if we were to see these inflationary shocks again. In terms of um, finding ways to protect against these and hedge and protect against these types of environments, I mean, the one thing that we do is we have developed and implemented trend following um, overlay that we can deploy on, you know, equities and other asset classes. Um, let's just sort of talk about maybe the pluses and minuses of that and what goes into it and how we actually do it. Sure. So first I want to take a step back though and say for most people, most people have stocks and bonds in their portfolios. And I think for most people, something like that is probably the best way to go. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's sort of the we're going to talk about some more advanced techniques here. But the standard stocks and bonds is a great allocation and bonds do a very good job, as we're seeing during this coronavirus scare. Bonds do a very good job of managing risk within a portfolio. So although the 60-40 portfolio may have some issues going forward because of how low rates are right now and how high or how, at least how high valuations used to be before what just happened happened, Although it may have some issues in the future, it's been a very strong portfolio for managing risk, and that's why most people use it. But we're going to talk about some more advanced things here, and mm. as you pointed out, trend following is one of the things we use. And so, and so trend following is built really to manage major declines. Trend following is not built to handle corrections you know, or, or things like that. Trend following is, is built for when you have these major declines in the market – it's going to lose some money, but it, it tries to lose less money than the market. And that's what trend following is all about. It's about managing volatility during those periods. It's about managing the maximum drawdown of a portfolio. So for someone who's interested in just managing risk in these major bear markets, trend following can be a very interesting tool. Um, but it's also important to understand it does not it does not manage small risks. You know, most market corrections you're going to sit through with trend following. And also it can get whipsawed. And so when you, you have years like 2011 where things are going back and forth a lot, trend following is going to significantly underperform a buy and hold approach. So like any approach to risk management or, or any approach in general that makes you look different in the market, trend following is going to have its pros and it's going to have its cons. And it, its pro is that it does very well in major drawdowns. Its cons are, you know, in, in whipsawed markets or markets where, you know, stocks just go straight up, trend following is going to struggle relative to buy and hold. Yeah, maybe just to build on that a little bit, in this decline, what we're facing right now, most trend following systems, which are based on, or many are based on moving averages, depending on the um, length of time you're using, you, you probably have had to sit through the vast majority of this decline so far. Um, I think when the market go like crashes, this is unprecedented. We've had basically a 25% decline in the market maybe even 30% for some indices, you know, in less than a month. So trend following systems aren't really going to protect you that well, at least the ones that we use, which are based more on 
you know, a more mid to longer term moving average. Um, they're not going to necessarily protect you in, from this type of thing, particularly given that coming into it, we were so far above those averages in terms of price, right? Yeah, you know, the straight down declines are where trend following struggles. And, you know, and this is an interesting decline because the shorter the moving averages you're using, the better you've done here. So if you were right. using, you know, most people don't use the 50-day moving average for trend following solely because it's, it's, it would have a lot of bouncing back and forth. But, you know, the 50-day moving average got you out of most of this. You know, the 200-day moving average got you out of some of this. And then it, if you're using like a crossover strategy that people, some people use, they call it the death cross, which is when the 50-day moving averages moves below the 200, you're still in stocks and you've, you've saved nothing in this decline. Mm. And so it's one of the reasons using multiple signals of trend following is important is, you know, if, if you were using all of those signals, you've gotten, you've saved some in this decline, but you're still invested some. And so rather than try to pick the best one, sometimes it's best to use multiple ones. But, but in this case, with these rapid declines, trend following can struggle relative to some other risk mitigation techniques. And 1987 would be the biggest example of that. You know, most trend following strategies, since that was a one day, 20% decline, just sat through that and couldn't do anything about it. And one other point, you might have already said this, but you know, a lot of these trend following systems, they have a lot of um, false signals. So you may move out of the market and ends up being, you know, the wrong, it detracts from performance, but a lot of times where they make up for it, is, you know, they save or can help protect portfolio maybe falling from, you know, 20% to 40%. If the, if the trend following system has you out at 20% and it's a four, and, and, and it's a bear market that's down by eventually goes to 40% down, a trend following can save you a lot of uh, pain and losses during that period. But they oftentimes have a lot of false signals and they get whipsawed. So they can also um, sort of detract from returns as well. Uh, but they make up for it, you know, when, when they get it right and the market continues lower from when the trend following, you know, sell signal is generated. That's right. You know, the, the nature of trend following is what you'll see is a lot of small incorrect decisions, which are more than made up for by some major, major correct decisions. So, you know, many trend following systems lost next to nothing in 2008. That's a major, major correct decision. Since 2008, they've pretty much been wrong most of the time up until, you know, this period where some of them have been more right than others. But that's what you see in the profile of trend following. You see big savings in these major bear markets offset to some extent by these small incorrect decisions in the other periods. Okay, let's pivot to um, the permanent portfolio, which you had mentioned that before. You know, what's interesting with the permanent, I'll, and I'll let you explain what's going on there. But I do remember, I think like, before 08, I want to say that permanent portfolio, which there is a mutual fund based on it, uh, this strategy, um, I think it had like 300 million in assets, something like this. It was a couple hundred million in assets. And then 08 came and, you know, this portfolio did a real good job. It protected capital. It did what it was supposed to do. Um, and I think it might have got, went from like, you know, maybe like close to 10 billion in AUM. That's obviously come way, way, way down again because it really hasn't been that good of a strategy over the last 10 years. Um, it's probably done what, what it would have been expected to do. It just hasn't, you know, kept up barely with stocks because of the asset class that it holds. So, I mean, why don't you, you want to sort of describe what's going on there? Pretty yeah. Simple. So the theory of the, of the permanent portfolio is I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I don't know what types of shocks we're going to get. So what I want to do is have something that's going to work no matter what's going on. And so I've got stocks for my long-term return. I've got bonds, which do very well in these deflationary shocks. I've got gold, which does very well in the inflationary shocks, and then I've got a cash position as well. So I've got all four of those things weighted at 25%, and, and therefore, no matter what goes on, 
I'm going to have something that's doing well. And so when you look at the return profile of the permanent portfolio long term, it has much, much smaller declines than the market does during all, all these bad periods. But it also has a lower return than the market. You know, so you, you do give up something in terms of long term return, but you get a much more stable ride. And, you know, Dalio's all-weather portfolio is sort of in this same category. He's trying to do the same thing. He's trying to find to say, what are the different things that could happen in the future? I want to have something that's going to do well no matter what happens. And so both of those sort of fall in the same camp. But as you mentioned before, you know, the, these types of – we're going through a big deflationary shock right now. And these types of strategies can have a, attract a lot of assets during a period like this. But you also also have to understand that the flip side is – when stocks are leading the way and stocks are just going straight up, you've got 75% of your portfolio in things that are not stocks. And so you may have smoother returns, but you're going to struggle a lot during these, these long, drawn-out bull markets. What's your feeling on rebalancing back to so – it, so the portfolio would have a 25% weight in each, and then as those assets fluctuate, you know, could you like – I mean, you could deploy like an annual rebalancing to bring them back to equal weight? Yeah, you know, rebalancing is pretty much always a good idea. And an annual rebalancing, like you said, it, it could work. Or also you could do some sort of target-based rebalancing. If, if they get too far out of whack, mm. you rebalance them back. And, you know, that, that could work during a time like this where we get one of these major shocks and you get a huge change in the weighting. Like, for instance, right now, during this decline, TLT, which is the long-term, which is long-term bonds, has been going up a ton and stocks have been falling. So you can get when, – when one's going way up and one's going way down, you can get a huge shift in your weightings. And so you can if, – if you have sort of targets set in advance that if it gets this far off, I'm going to rebalance, you can take that opportunity to maybe bring things back. So you can do it in different ways, but definitely rebalancing is important because what does well in one period is not necessarily going to do well in another period. And so you want to, you want to bring that back to where – to its target over time. Right. Okay. That's good. Yep. Um, all right. So let's move on to another interesting strategy. Um, so we're getting a little bit more advanced now. Um, the permanent portfolio is, you know, pretty straightforward and simple. Um, trend following isn't necessarily simple to implement um, for some investors, but I mean, that is a technique. But then um, there's a strategy called protective asset allocation. And this is a um, model that basically uses you know, asset class diversification, trend following, and the ability to um, raise or go to cash um, when a certain number of holdings or assets have negative momentum. So uh, do you want to talk a little bit about what goes into this strategy and how it can actually be implemented? Sure. So it's based on a paper by Keller and Kooning. And the theory is we'll start with a cross-section of the assets that are available to an investor. And so you have things like the S&P 500, the NASDAQ 100, Europe and Japan equities, emerging market equities, real estate, commodities, gold, high-yield bonds, corporate bonds, U.S. treasuries of both long and inter intermediate term. And so you start with that as your group of assets you can invest in. And, and then what you do during normal times is you look at the momentum of each of these asset classes over a blend of short and long-term periods, you know, periods up to a year, but also including some shorter-term periods. You pick the six that have the best momentum and you invest in them. And, and that becomes your portfolio. And so what you're trying to do is you're trying to stay in the things that are working. And so the, the other interesting part of this is when too many of these start to break down from a momentum perspective. So when you start to see you know, a group of these 12 assets that have negative momentum, as that number rises, you begin to raise cash or you, you invest in either intermediate term treasuries or short term treasuries, depending on what's, which one of those has, has better momentum. But so the theory is, as, as the market in general and all these asset classes begin to break down, I begin to raise cash. 
And then once we get to a point where that exceeds six, where you have more than six out of the 12 asset classes that have negative momentum, you just go and you, you invest in what they call the crash protection, protection asset. And the, and the theory is if more than six of these are in a negative trend, since they're such a diversified group of asset classes, you probably have something major going on in the market. And so you want to shift into your crash protection asset. And so as an example, right now in, in this market, this uh, coronavirus driven decline we're in, this is mostly now into the crash protection asset because we, we started to see negative momentum on our last rebalancing, you know, a good group of these were in, you know, were in negative downtrends and we, 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 the system began to raise cash. And so most of this is now invested in the crash protection asset. You know, like you said, it's moved to the crash protection stance. So that's been a positive for this strategy so far this year. Um, so if you look and, and this is a good, you know, we don't want to sit here and advertise how well these have no, done no. in a very short decline because that's not the point of these, you know, the, the point of these are, are long-term strategies, but it does, you can learn a lot about them by how they work in these certain, in, in certain types of declines. And so, you know, our, our model based on protective asset allocation is done about 5% better than a 60, 40 portfolio. So it's down this year, but it's, it's performed better than a 60, 40 portfolio, because again, it's been going to where the momentum is and, and, you know, things like long-term bonds had good momentum coming into this and it's also been able to raise some cash. And so that's helped to, have less decline than a 60-40 portfolio. And as we move to the next one, you'll see the contrast. And this is another strategy called generalized protective, it's called generalized protective momentum. It's by the same two authors. Mm -hmm. and, and the major difference is generalized protective momentum doesn't just take into account the momentum of the strategies, it takes into account the correlation between them. And so whereas protective asset allocation is going to buy whatever has the best momentum, generalized protective momentum is going to buy whatever has the best combination of momentum and correlation with the group of the strategies as a whole. So as an example, protective asset allocations, when we started this decline, had a significant exposure to stocks because stocks had the best momentum. Generalized protective momentum had a much lower allocation to stocks. And the reason is because things like bonds and gold had actually been doing quite well coming into this. They hadn't done as well as stocks but they had the combination of they've done quite well and they have very low correlation with the group of assets as a whole. And so you'll see generalized protective momentum has been one of the best strategies during this decline. It's, it's actually up significantly while the market's down significantly. And the, and the reason is because of that correlation component. It wasn't as heavily into stocks coming in because it was in these, it sort of says, well, if I can invest in two different assets that have a lot of momentum, I might as well invest in the one that has lower correlation with everything else because it's a less risky approach. And so in this particular decline, that type of approach worked out better than just have just investing in the things with the most momentum, although that can change in any decline. But it's a good way to contrast the two of them is that correlation component can lead to really different outcomes between the two strategies in specific declines. Okay. No, that's good. That's a, and both of these strategies, protective asset allocation and generalized protective momentum, I believe there's white papers on both of these that will put uh, in the show notes. Um, I know for sure protective asset allocation um, and I think generalized protective momentum as well. So we'll put put those links to the show notes and links to um, our implementation of the models as well if anyone's interested in looking at those. It's also important to note, you know, we, we sort of talked about when these things work. It's also important to talk about when they don't and what the downsides of them are. And so both of these in the long bull market we just had trailed the market by a decent amount. You know, they're trying to stay in what has the best momentum. But it doesn't necessarily work all the time. And, and in the last bull market, you would have been much better off just buying the S&P 500 than trying to rotate among these things. So one of the downsides of these is, you know, during, you know, long increases in the market, they can tend to trail. They also can get faked out sometimes. So if momentum is shifting back and forth, they're trying to move into what has the most momentum. But if then that shifts, they get stuck in that and they can't get into the new thing. And so when, when things are shifting around, 
that can be a problem. And then the, the third major downside is taxes. Um, you know, if, if you're switching in and out of things frequently and you're in a taxable account, your after-tax return is going to be significantly significantly below your actual return. And so it's important to understand in, in taxable accounts, these may not be the best solution because they are taking significant short-term gains as they rotate among these asset classes. Well, and one, one other point, you know, an investor trying to actually implement this, you know, there's a lot of touches, there's a lot of changes, you know, particularly when the momentum is, you know, selecting, you know, different groups of asset classes each month, depending on how often you rebalance. So, you know, sometimes more touches isn't, isn't always better, um, particularly when things are kind of getting dicey or a strategy is not working. Um, so that would be just another thing to understand that if you're going to implement this, um, you know, these are pretty highly active strategies um, that require, you know, someone to really be in there on a monthly basis and be implementing these with discipline. Um, and that can be tough for a lot of investors. And that results in sort of the tax inefficiencies to your to your point as well of them. Yeah, and as we talked about in the beginning, you know, for most people stocks and bonds is probably the best risk management technique. But th there's so many other interesting ways to manage risk out, out there and these these types of declines are a great way to look at them and you know just see how they actually perform relative to what you expect during during the decline. And so it, it was an interesting time, I think, just to talk about the various other ways you can do it. And for some more sophisticated investors, an approach, you know, as long as you understand the upsides and the downsides, some of these more advanced approaches might make some sense, um, just to, depending on each person's individual situation, their risk tolerance, and what they're trying to accomplish. Great. Well, I think that's a good way to wrap this uh, discussion up. So thank you, everyone, for listening. We hope you found this valuable. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.